Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome. Um, oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. We didn't plan that, by the way, the rock thing this morning. Um, Nelson and I didn't talk about that or Antonio. Um, they, I don't even know if they knew I was going to be preaching from Psalm 95. Uh, maybe God planned that, um, you know, the, the rock of our salvation. Um, it's good to see all of you here. It's really a blessing to be able to gather. It's a blessing to be able to gather in more safely distance, uh, but also be able to uh, be together and provoke one another to love and to good works. Um, I want to talk to you today um, about why the church comes together. And I've been planning uh, a series of lessons on that I'd like to discuss, begin discussing with you each month um, on the importance that the scripture gives to the assembly. Uh, it's coincidence, I think, that this happened to be the first of those lessons when we're gathering in this new place. Um, but for me, when it, when it comes to the assembly, there's no better place to begin than uh, Psalm 95, because Psalm 95 is uh, the venite of the Psalms, or um, the venite is the Latin that means, oh, come. It's an invitation to come together into the assembly of God's people to worship God. Um, and I'll just say the trials of this past year, I think, have made many across our city and many across our nation and many across the world reconsider whether or not the church really needs to come together. Um, the, in fact, I would I would argue that long before uh, COVID, our individualistic spirit in, the, in, in this nation influences us to question, why do we need to be together? Why does the church need to assemble in order to serve the Lord at all? If having a relationship with God is between me and him, then why must I also be with other people? Um, we often speak about having a personal relationship with God. Sometimes we get the wrong idea behind that. that it's just something between me and God and nobody else. So I want us today to look at this psalm together and, and just uh, to consider together why the church comes together. Uh, there's a whole lot more to discuss on this topic than what we're going to cover today. And there's even a whole lot more in this psalm than what we're going to uh, consider today. But I'd like to, for us to focus just on three simple points that this psalmist makes clear about why the church comes together. Uh, and I'll give them to you here and then we'll kind of break them down a little bit. Um, so first, the church comes together um, for worship. Uh, we come together to worship the Lord, and that's why we're here today. Um, the church comes together for worship. The church also comes together for encouragement. Uh, we come together to edify one another, to build up the body of Christ. Uh, and then finally, we're going to talk about the church comes together for preparation. And I'll explain what I mean by that um, when we get there a little bit later on. But first, notice in the psalm that we come together for worship. Notice how the psalm begins. Let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Note that this psalm, uh, in this psalm, worship involves at least three things. It involves first the emotions. Do you see that there in the psalm? Um, words like sing for joy and shout. Um, these, these words remind us that worship ought to be emotional. And 
the way people express emotion across culture and place and time uh, may be different. There may be different ways in which people express their emotions and, and there may be different styles of worship. But worship that is void of emotion is not worship at all. Let me say that again. Worship that is void of emotion is not worship at all. How can we, when we think about who God is, and when we come into the presence of the rock of our salvation, how can we come to worship him with no emotion, with no emotion whatsoever? Worship that is void of emotion is not worship at all. How can we not sing for joy? How can we not shout aloud to him? If we truly see God as he really is, then it will lead us to worship him with the kind of fervor and the kind of enthusiasm and the kind of zeal that other people will find crazy. They'll find it strange. Do you remember that when David came into uh, the city with the ark, singing and dancing before the Lord? And his wife looked at him and said, that guy's out of his mind. I don't want anything to do with him. But David said, "What? What? I'm worshiping God. If my eyes are on the Lord, it's going to lead me to act in ways that other people who don't have that same zeal or appreciation for God may look at and say, that's really, really strange and really odd. Well, worship ought to lead us to pour out our hearts to God, to, to have emotion as we when we sing about God being our rock in a weary land. We've been through trials. We've been through temptations. We've been through tests. Of late, it ought to it ought to fill us with the zeal and an appreciation and a love for God to, to sing to God as the rock of our salvation. But notice too in the psalm, it's not just emotion, um, but worship also involves the mind. Notice the exhortation, especially at the end of verse seven. Today, if only you would hear His voice. And I want to suggest this to you that when we come together for worship, we not only engage our emotions, we engage our mind. Our minds, we come here to hear the word of God. And it's important to remember, too, that in the Old Testament, to hear is not just to let it go in the ears. To hear is to heed. It is to obey. Sometimes the word is translated hearken or heed in the old translations that some of us still use a little bit. Um, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, uh, is not just whether we are hearing, but how are we hearing? How do we listen to the word of God? Are we the forgetful hearers that we can walk out of here and just as quickly as we get out the door, we've forgotten everything we discussed from the word of God? Or do we leave here and are, do we become effective doers of the word as James speaks about? What kind of ears do we bring into the assembly of God's people? We come here to worship, but not just to make a joyful noise to the Lord, but also to listen to God and to hear from God what he has to say to us and how he wants us to walk and how he wants us to live. Let me just suggest a third thing here. Worship involves the mind. It, inv it involves, sorry, it involves the emotions. It involves the mind. And thirdly, it involves the will. Do you notice the words here repeated again and again? Uh, come, let us bow down in worship. Um, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And, and, and it's important for us to remember that a joyful noise to the Lord is worthless if it doesn't lead us to a life of humble submission to the will of God. God's not looking for a group of people who will just come to, together and praise him with their lips. God is looking for a group of people who will praise them with their lips and with their lives. And God wants us to come together to sing praises to him, but as, uh, as an effective way of prostrating ourselves before the Lord. Think about this. The Hebrew word for worship is it comes from that idea to 
to prostrate yourself, that is to put yourself low before the presence of God. And we come into God's presence so that we may be bowed low before him. That's why our brother said, bow your head when we pray. The idea is that what we do with our body, we're also doing with our heart and our mind. We are making ourselves low before God and reminding ourselves of our place before him. How great is our God and how lowly are we? And that's what worship is all about. The word for worship means to prostrate oneself. And so we come here not just to engage our emotions and not just to engage our mind, but also to submit our will to his will, to renew our minds, to say, your will be done and not my will, as our Savior Jesus said. So we come here to worship. Now, notice in the text, um, there's a reason for this. Come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with the music and song. For, for, for implies a reason. And I just want to say this, that everyone has a reason for what they worship. Everybody has a reason for what they worship. Uh, we, you, you can see worship expressed uh, even by what you might say, irreligious people all around. Just spend time with people in a gathering and you can find out very quickly what they worship, what really matters to them. You don't have to spend a lot of time with people to figure out, hey, what really is what really is is their soul and their heart invested in in worshiping and giving up their life for. Um, We sing about the things that are important to us in this world. Right. Um, Just turn on the radio and you can learn a lot about our culture's idols from just listening to the popular songs. Like what are they singing about? Um, singing about love. Uh, I remember when I was at uh, in Kentucky um, in school, after every basketball game, we would sing what was essentially our Pledge of Allegiance to Kentucky. We would sing My Old Kentucky Home. Uh, and it was after every game. We sang about it because people in Kentucky are invested in their state. They love their state. They are loyal to their state. And, and we sing that, right? You got national anthems all over the world. You got songs that people sing about their love of country. You see, the point is that everybody has a reason for what they worship. And that worship, it gets expressed in, uh, in, in, in a lot of different ways. Through how we sing, through what, how we talk, through what really matters, through, through, through the way we express ourselves, we can see what really matters. Uh, and I just want to say this. If we, can, if we can shout for King James or for, uh, for Steph Curry and the Warriors, then surely we can shout for King Jesus, the greatest warrior the world has ever known. It ought to be that our worship for God far transcends our investment and our enthusiasm and our zeal for anything else in this world. So for, what is our reason for coming together into the assembly? Well, simply stated, our reason is God. But look at the ways that the psalmist describes God. He is the rock of our salvation. We sang a bunch of songs today about God being our rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus is a rock in a weary land. But I want you to think about, like when you sing that, what goes through your mind? What are you thinking about when you think of God as your rock? Um, The first place in the Bible where this word rock is used, by the way, this is just Fun. Some of you guys will appreciate fun little trivia fact here. Uh, Suri is comes from the word for rock, sur, um, in the Bible, um, and uh, and the word for rock is used first in Exodus chapter seventeen. Now, do you remember the story? 
in Exodus 17, God has delivered his people out of bondage and out of slavery. And he's got them out into the wilderness. And he's taking them to the promised land. But it's not an easy journey. They get out, out of the, out of, and this is the thing. You guys were just baptized yesterday. We talked about this afterwards. Sometimes right after they were baptized in the Red Sea, they get in the wilderness. It was not an easy journey. And sometimes right after you're baptized can be some of the greatest challenges and trials of life. But think about this. They come out of, uh, of Egypt and now they're, now they're on this long, exhausting journey. Now think about this. They, they didn't carry like bottled water with them. They didn't have carts or that kind of stuff along the way. They're going through a wilderness um, and, and there's not like, you know, there's, they don't have the bodegas along the way. You know, you can just stop and pick it up uh, whenever you need it. They're not carrying all that stuff with them. They're on this long, exhausting journey and they're out of water. And they come to a place called Rephidim and they've been walking by faith, not knowing where they're going, not knowing how long it's going to take to get there. And all they know is that their shoes are wearing out, their shoe, their, their, their feet are getting dirty, they're getting tired, they're, they're getting exhausted, and now they're out of water. And the people come to Moses and they start to complain. And then when they could endure it no longer, God tells Moses, hey, there's the rock over there. He points to the rock and he tells Moses, strike the rock. And that rock brought forth a stream of living water. And the people came and drank, and they found in that rock their salvation in the wilderness. Now, because of that story and other stories like it, when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses starts speaking about God that way. God is our rock. Um, he is our rock, uh, the rock of our salvation. And if you think about that idea, he is the rock that gives life. He is the rock that, uh, he, and, and I think about just the idea of a rock reminds us that he's steady, that he's stable, that he's not going anywhere, that he's permanent, that he's reliable. I can count on him. He's not going to abandon me in my time of need. Life may be hard. Uh, changes may come, but I rest on his unchanging grace because God is my rock. He never fails. He is steady. He is stable. He's reliable. He's safe. He's a place of refuge. And so when we think about this, as we sing about God being the rock of our salvation, this ought to stir up in our mind memory of how God as our rock has given us life. When we were weary and when we were wasting away and when we were dead in our sins, he gave us water to drink. When we were searching for water in all these broken wells that couldn't hold it and we kept coming back empty, the Lord gave us water that would quench our thirst. God is the rock that gives us life, our savior, our refresher, our restorer, and our refuge. Notice also the psalmist says this, uh, why do we come together and worship him? Why do we bow down in worship? Why do we kneel? Because the Lord is our maker. Back in verse three, he's the great God, the king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to them. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Now, I think of, when I read that, I think about um, being on the beach. And some of you guys have done this. You get on the beach and you start to, you know, hanging out there for a while. And eventually you're like, hey. We should do something. Well, let's build something. So we start, you know, playing in the sand and trying to build this little sandcastle and stuff. 
Um, think of the world that way, where God just takes his hands in the sand and he, oh, there's a mountain, you know, just makes a little mountain. And, you know, the things uh, in St. Vincent, they've been, uh, there's been a volcano exploding. And, 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 Matt, and, and, and we know from connections there about the fear and the terror that people have for this volcano. But think about for God, that volcano was made with just his, just his hands. It's nothing compared to him. For God, the mountains are nothing in his sight. They, they can be made just with his fingers. We praise God and we come together as a church to worship God because he is our maker. He is our creator, our sustainer. And notice lastly, he is Yahweh. He is the one who is our God and our shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. And when you think about God being our shepherd, it ought to remind you that every time you're in need, where do your provisions come from? And every time you're in danger and every time life is scary and you're afraid, where does your protection come from? The Lord is our shepherd. We are the people of his pasture. So we come together to worship God. And at the center of everything we do together is God Almighty, Yahweh God, who we have come together to remember and to honor and to worship, to bow down before him, to kneel before him, to sing for joy to him. And to shout aloud to him because he is our God. All right. But that's not the only reason we come together for worship. We come together for worship, but also for encouragement. Notice in verse eight, the text says, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Do not harden your hearts. Jeremiah would later say the heart is deceptive. And left to ourselves, we are much more vulnerable to the devil's schemes and can easily be led astray. You might say, well, why are we reading about the church from Psalm 95? Why, what does this have to do with the church? This is, this is for Israel of old. Well, actually, the Hebrew writer, if you would turn over with me for a minute, to Hebrews chapter 3, and I want you to notice the Hebrew writer clarifies that this psalm was not meant just for Israel of old that this, this psalm is actually for the people of God today. So notice what, what the Hebrew writer says, if I can get there, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 7 beginning. Hebrews chapter 3 and in verse 7 beginning. Let me start actually just a word before that. In verses 1 to 6, the Hebrew writer is pointing out how faithful Jesus has been. And he talks about how Moses was a servant who was faithful in God's house, but Jesus was the son over God's house. And then he says, actually in verse six, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, this is a good reminder since we're in a new space today um, for each of us. We are God's house, not this structure, not this building, not any building on this earth. We, as the people of God, are God's house. And I don't have a problem with people using the word like that we're going to the church building. Uh, we do that with school, too. We say, I'm going to school. But we know that like what makes a school a school is actually the people that are there. But that we, sometimes we refer to structure that way. So I don't have a problem if you speak of this as like the church building. It's not an issue. But we do need to understand this, that the church is not the building. The church is God's house, which is his people. And we need to think about it ourselves that way. We are God's house if we hold on to our confidence firm to the end. So what does he say? 
Okay, so since you are God's house, look at verse seven, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the time of rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though I did for 40 years, they saw what I did. And this is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger and said, they shall never enter my rest. Where did he get that from? Where did the Holy Spirit say that? Psalm 95. You see, the Hebrew writer is saying here that actually what Psalm, what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 95 is directly applicable to the people of God today. We are God's house. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I want you to think about this. We are, as has already been mentioned, in the wilderness. This is a time of trial and testing. As long as we are on this earth, we are until the day in which the Lord returns, we are in a time of trial and testing. So you know what we need in a time of trial and testing? Well, if we're not careful, we could be like that generation of Israel of whom God said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. As I read that this morning, I, was, I asked myself this question. What would God say about me? And what would God say about us? That's a really sad description of the way God described his people. Their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. What would God say about me? What would God say about us as his people? You see, one of the reasons why the church comes together, and this is what the Hebrew writer is encouraging here in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 4. One of the reasons why the church comes together is we encourage one another so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at it, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see what this text is saying? In times of hardship, in times of trial, look back at the Exodus story and we see this. In times of hardship and in times of trial, there are temptations and sin is very deceptive. We are easily deceived and easily left to ourselves and on our own. We are easily deceived and easily led astray. So you know why we come together? We come together to encourage one another so that sin does not get deep into our heart and harden us so that we cannot hear God's word and obey him. That's why we're here. We're here to encourage one another day after day, because don't you know this to be true? Sometimes you can walk out of here so encouraged, but just a day or two or three or four later, you can really be struggling. That's why he says, encourage one another daily, day after today. It's not just something we do one day, one time a week. We gather to encourage one another so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I want you to think about this. Over the past year, it's been hard for us to get together. It's been hard for Christians all over the world to get together. Have you seen people who have suffered because of that? Have you seen people who have been deceived by, by sin? Have you seen people who've lost their love for God, who've been led astray by the devil's schemes? This is why we come together, to encourage one another day after day so that none of us is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't read texts like this and think, hey, my relationship with God is just between me and him, right? No, my relationship with God is between me and him and all of his people. 
We are together and we've got to grow to the maturity where we start thinking not just about whether or not I'm right with God or whether or not I'm pleasing God, but whether or not we are pleasing God. We as the people of God are together to encourage one another. So I might say, well, I'm doing great. No big deal. I don't need to be here. Like I'm doing great with God. I haven't been given into any sin. Well, one, be careful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. But number two, it doesn't matter whether I'm doing great. If my brothers and sisters need me, then I need to be there. And I need to be with one another, encourage one another. Sin is deceptive. But we, he says, have come to share in Christ. And that's why we're here. We're here to share in Christ. So let's not be like that generation of Israel of whom God said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. Hebrew writer would say later in Hebrews chapter 10, just building on this idea. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, down through verse 24. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another to on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Few things I want us to notice here. First, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. You want to know why we're here today? Because of the blood of Jesus. Because by his blood, which was shed, we can confidently enter God's most holy place. When I when I start to lose my zeal for coming together with the people of God, I need to remember. And I need to reflect and I need to be renewed with the truth that I have access into the presence of God. Not because I deserve it. In fact, I am completely undeserving of it. But because of Jesus Christ, who loved me so much, he gave up his life and shed his blood for me. And you know what happens when our bodies are washed with pure water? Our hearts are sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. That's what baptism is all about. Able to die to self, to bury that old person, to have our sins washed away so that all of that guilty conscience is removed. And we're able to stand before God knowing that by his grace, we are pleasing to him and we are able to do his will. So we're here for this purpose then. Our sins have been washed away. Our our guilty conscience has been removed. So why do we come together? We come together to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Have you thought about that? Actually, the reason we get together is because we are God's house. We are God's family. And so we love one another. And we're gathering to grow in our love for one another, to learn how to love each other better. It's the same reason why families spend time together to try to get to know one another, to try to figure out how to love each other more and more day after day. That's why we come together. 
We are the family of God. We're going to be spending eternity together. So we spend our time together in order to be able to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. God is love. So his people ought to be known by their love. And that's why we don't give up meeting. Because we are encouraging one another and we see that day is drawing near. We see that there's a time coming soon in which none of the things that matter to the people of this world will matter anymore. And on that day, the only thing that will matter is whether or not we're part of the family of God and sharing in his love forevermore. Throughout history um, and throughout the history of God's people, the assembly was often a place where the people came together and experienced revival. Um, one of my favorite places to see that, there's many places to see that in scripture, but uh, one of my favorite places is in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, where the chapter opens by speaking about the people coming together. They stood in their places. They confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And then they spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. I love that. We come together because that's where we experience revival, renewal. That's where we can come in and read the word of God and the word of God stirs us up. And as we sing these truths about God together and as we pray to God together with the people of God, we're stirred up to love and to good works. We're stirred up and we're encouraged to go out and to do his will. Uh, a couple more quick references here. First Corinthians 14. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 that when the whole church comes together, everything must be done for the building up of the saints. That's why we're here, to encourage one another, to build each other up. And so it doesn't make sense to do anything that's not going to be encouraging and edifying to the body of Christ. Acts chapter 4, when the saints uh, were started experiencing persecution, do you remember this? Lots of persecution coming, and all of a sudden the apostles are getting, getting uh, harassed and threatened. And they come, they come out in Acts chapter 4. When they finally get, get out, they come together and all the, all the saints gather together and they spend some time in prayer. And the text says this in Acts chapter 4. Let me go there so I don't misquote it. Um, but in Acts chapter 4, after they pray and after they spend some time reflecting on the word of God and how it was, how it was being brought to fruition, it says um, after they prayed that the place in verse 31 where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. You see that? By coming together and assembling together, they were stirred up to go out and fulfill their mission to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring the gospel to those who were dead in their sins. All right, lastly, we come together for worship. We come together for encouragement. We come together for preparation. And you might say, preparation for what? Did you notice how the psalm ends? Psalm 95 and verse 11. No, look at the last word. God swears an oath in his anger, and he says, they shall never enter my rest. That's how the psalm is. Kind of a, kind of a like, scary ending to a, what started out as like a really exciting psalm, but it ends kind of on a sobering note. They shall never enter my rest. Uh, you know, the truth is that many of us are in assemblies all week long. Some of us are in assemblies uh, with people of the world all week long, either virtually or in person. 
And all of these meetings, um, if you think about it, all these meetings are encouraging us to prepare for something. They're all focused on, on some sort of goal, some sort of end. You know, we're either we're going in a meeting and, and entering in the meeting um, to uh, work on a new project um, or something at work, right? Uh, or maybe some of you are teachers, you're going into a, a new classroom. You're going to be, or, or, or maybe even in our social life, sometimes we're going out and we're spending time entering into new relationships. But when we're in the assemblies of the world, it's very rare to find an assembly that encourages us to prepare for eternity, to prepare to enter into God's rest. And this is why the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter four and verse one, the promise of entering his rest still stands. That is to say, hey, Psalm 95 was not just about, hey, we're going to enter into the promised land, like the, the territory, the dirt in Israel. That was not the goal. He says, actually, the promise still remains promise of entering his rest still stands. So let us be careful that none of us be found to fall short of it. So why do we come together? Well, continuing in verse 11, he says, we are making every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You see that? Why do we come together? Because we've got a goal that transcends every other goal in this world, a goal of entering into God's rest. Psalm 1, um, you remember Psalm 1? We normally, we normally meditate a lot on the first four verses of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man, doesn't walk in the path of the wicked, stand in the path of sinner, sit in the seat of scoffers. His delights in the law of the Lord, and in his, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit, strong, stable, fruitful in its season. Do you know how that Psalm ends, though? The wicked are not so. They're like chaff, which the wind blows away. Listen to this. Listen to how Psalm, Psalm 1 ends. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. You know, one of the ironies of Psalm 1 is when you start out in that psalm, the beginning, how blessed is the man, singular, who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, plural. And maybe I'm making too much of this, but I think the psalmist is trying to point out here that actually to live a righteous life in this world is often a more lonely path. It's often a lonely path. It's often a man in the midst of a wicked world, a, a woman standing around uh, sinful people, and life often feels lonely. But you know how the psalm ends? The wicked will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. Do you know why we come together? Because we believe that one day there will be an assembly of all God's righteous people who will be together for all eternity, and everything we're doing here is in preparation for that great assembly, when we are together with God's people forevermore. And I want to tell you, doesn't matter how successful we are, how fruitful, how um, wealthy, how great our life in this world is. If we miss out on that, we've missed it all. There's a promise of God's rest awaiting us in every Thing we do is preparing for that. Let's end with in the book of Revelation. I just want to show you a few pictures of this as we wrap up. In the book of Revelation, you see this over and over and over again. God's people gathered together in the assembly of the righteous, worshiping God, surrounding his throne, praising God forevermore. Re Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. 
I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sun, under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you see this? The picture in the book of Revelation is the way the story of the Bible ends is in the assembly. The assembly of God's people all gathered together, worshiping him, praising him forevermore. Uh, another great place to see that in, in Revelation chapter 7. We're going to skip that one for the sake of time. But I want to point you to one more, how the Bible ends in, in Revelation 21. Look at Revelation 21 in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. You see that? How does the Bible end? With God coming back into fellowship with his people back into the assembly of his people where God is able to dwell with them and be their God and they are his people. So why does the church come together? We come together for worship. We come together for encouragement. We come together for preparation to enter into his rest. But if I was to sum it all up in one point instead of three, we come together because of God. Because God is the rock of our salvation. In fact, Listen to Paul discuss this with the Corinthians who were thirsty, but they were seeking to quench their thirst in all the wrong places. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Now, I'm stopping there, but I'll just say this. That doesn't end well. They drank from the spiritual rock, which was Christ, and then they all died in the wilderness because they didn't hold on. And they hardened their hearts and they were led astray. But that's not how this story was supposed to end. And that's not how it should end for us. You see, Jesus was the rock that was struck so that... From him, our rock might flow rivers of living water. 
so that if we drink from him, we might come to him and live. When he was smitten by God and afflicted, outflowed rivers of living water, of which we drink, and through which we have eternal life, in an eternal assembly where we will worship forever and ever our eternal king. So it really does. It all comes down to this. Everything we do as the church of God and everything we do when we come together as the people of God, it's all for him. It's all for God and it's all for Christ. Blessed be God, the rock of our salvation.